So the, the meaning of the death of Jesus, uh, this is, I'm just going to discuss one aspect. Uh, when I um, post this, um, this talk on the, the God's Character website, I'll put a link to a more extensive, I wrote an article on, on the atonement and uh, the other aspects. So we're just going to focus in on one, I think, very important area in terms of the death of Jesus. Okay, but if you want to read something more extensive, you can do that. And I think whenever we talk about the death of Jesus and the meaning of the death of Jesus and the atonement, uh, we just need to have a lot of uh, humility and never feel like we've, we've completely covered all the angles and we know A, B, C, D, this is why Jesus had to die. So we should always be working on this okay, and trying to come to, to greater understandings. And I always uh, have enjoyed this quote by Mel Gibson just because, boy, it makes it very narrow, very specific. Uh, when he made his movie about the death of Jesus, I heard this on a radio interview, and I wrote it down, and, and I've always thought about it ever since. So Mel Gibson said, well, Jesus could have pricked his finger and solved the problem, but he wanted to go all the way. Uh, do you agree with that? Um, red blood cells. Um, you know, and I don't mean to make light of this, but uh, a drop of blood... And it does raise the question, then, what is the problem? And what is the problem that could be solved by a drop of blood? And, of course, when we think about Jesus, you know, when uh, certainly that blood could have been shed very early, right? Even as, a, as an infant. Remember, he had to be rescued. Herod was trying to kill all the babies. He was uh, rescued off to Egypt. So blood could have been shed absent the life, the ministry of Jesus. Okay, but... Uh, I would say that Jesus came to live and that the death of Jesus is the climax of the life. Okay, It highlights everything about the life of Jesus, but the death is really the, the culmination of everything about Jesus. And so when we think about blood, certainly this, this would be in a very, um, Mel Gibson's quote would be in a very legal kind of a framework, a payment needed to be made. But I think we need to take a much broader understanding of what it actually was accomplished at the cross. And just in terms of blood, we're not going to talk about blood beyond uh, this quote here. But, you know, Jesus' words here, how do we make, take this into a real literal sense? When he said, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourselves. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. Now, he's certainly not talking about cannibalism here, but what is... The meaning. There's a meaning to the blood, the body. What does it mean to eat the flesh, to drink the blood? Um, and so these people who eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will raise them to life on the last day, for my flesh is the real food. My blood is the real drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me, and I live in them. And so uh, one aspect here of this quote is I think Jesus is saying um, look, you need to internalize, just like you eat or drink something. What happens? It goes throughout the whole body. You need to internalize everything about the life, the death of Jesus. It needs to become a part of you, just like food and drink becomes a part of you. Okay, and so here, kind of talking with people who don't understand, he, he, he speaks in this way. And remember, this caused a real division among people. What does he mean? Eat his flesh, drink his blood. Okay, but when he tells his disciples in the upper room, this is eternal life makes it very clear to know God. Eternal life is to know God. Here it's, it's a little bit, um, well, I don't know. What, what would you make of this? It's, it's not quite entirely clear. That's why I like the upper room where he says so many times, now I'm going to tell you plainly and clearly. And I'll give you one of those quotes here in this lecture. <clears throat> okay, but here's our verse 
for today about the death of Jesus in Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. And this, in other translations, uh, can be uh, translated erasing the charges or the handwriting that was brought against us. So the charges here, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And um, what's always seemed uh, a little unusual to me, okay, he's talking about canceling charges that were against us. And then uh, what is the transition? How do we make this transition here? And having disarmed the powers and authorities after saying... Uh, This word here for the handwriting, you kind of see a choreography uh, here in this, uh, which is a handwritten document of a legal nature. And so what Paul is saying here and how this was done in ancient times, it would be blotted out with an X. Okay, But how do we relate all of that to what seems to be a, a continuing thought here? And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them, by the cross. And the powers and authorities here are the cosmic, spiritual powers and authorities. So other translations, he stripped away the power of spiritual or cosmic rulers and authorities. So how does this blotting out what was against us relate to disarming the powers and authorities? Okay, that's that's kind of our question. Because this is, um, and, and I'll show you some of the verses, it's, it's just such a repetitive theme. The death of Jesus, how it's tied into the defeat of Satan, and what's the relationship there? Okay, so that uh, kind of brings up who is our accuser? Who's the one that brings the charges against us? Okay, and for, for I would say most of my life, this was the model. I, I had a book with this picture in it, so I found the book and, and put it in there. And so, um, you know, the, my image was, well, what happens at the judgment scene? Who is the one back there who brings the charges? Okay, well, it's the Father. And who's the one who puts in a good word for me? Um, it's, it's Jesus, okay, the intercessor. But is the Father the one who brings the accusations? Okay, that's the question. So who accuses us? Okay, and of course, um, you know, Paul here in Romans is, is pretty clear that God is not our accuser. In view of all this, what can we say? This is the culmination of Romans 1 through 8. This is the, and he moves on to, to something new here in Romans 9. But in view of all this, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly not God, the Father, who did not even keep back his own son, but offered him for us all. So he goes on, who will accuse God's chosen people? God himself declares them not guilty. Who then will condemn them? And it seems almost kind of humorous here. Well, not Christ Jesus, obviously. Okay, but, but who is the accuser? And so this whole passage finishes off uh, with very familiar words. For I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love, neither death nor life. And I find it interesting that he includes some candidates. Well, what might try to separate us from the love of God? Neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rulers or powers, neither the present nor the future, neither the world above nor the world below. There is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, so the God is not our accuser. Okay, so the Father is for us. And we just read, he sent his only Son. The Son is for us. He died and intercedes uh, for us to bring us to the Father. The Holy Spirit is for us. 
We read that he also intercedes. Uh, and the, the function of his intercession, when Jesus described in the upper room three times, the Holy Spirit will bring you the truth about me. The Holy Spirit brings to our mind Jesus. Okay, that's his role of intercession. And I think it's... Uh, um, sometimes this is translated as plead, which I think can have a certain connotation that the fathers maybe needs to be pled with. But I like intercession when it's translated that way because intercession... I think the function is to bring us to God, not to shield us, not to plead, but the role of intercession, of Jesus' intercession, of the Holy Spirit's intercession, is to bring us to God. Okay, it's a one-way kind of a process. So God is not the accuser, and uh, this verse in John 5.22 is just so plain that the Father judges no one. I mean, just what do you think about that sentence? The Father judges no one. He's given all judgment entirely to the Son. And as we talked about um, in the Bible study last week, um, when Jesus talked to Nicodemus and he said, this is how the judgment works. And how the judgment works is God became a human, the light that came into the world. And the process of judgment is when we, we see the light. And if we come into the light, wonderful, but rejecting the light is the judgment. So the Son is the judge because he is the revealer. He is the one who brings us the light about the Father. So um, Jesus would say, I don't come to judge anyone. But Jesus stimulates the process of judgment, coming into the light or rejecting the light. But the Father judges no one. He's given it to the Son. Okay, so the one passage here I'll read from the upper room. And I just think if we wanted to elevate one part of the Bible to say, boy, here we just get it so clearly, so straight. And so much of the Bibles is in parables and things that are difficult to understand. Um, this part is not difficult to understand. Okay, it's in John 16 where Jesus told his disciples, I have been speaking to you in parables, but the time is coming to give up parables and to tell you plainly about the Father. So if we have any, any passage in the entire Bible where we want to hear plainly about the Father, this is it. Jesus' own words to his disciples. Okay, when that time comes, you will make your request to him in my own name. For I need make no promise to plead or some translations to intercede with the Father for you, which seems completely counterintuitive. You know, isn't our whole model built on Jesus pleading, interceding with the Father for you? It's kind of in a prophetic sense. When that time comes, you will make your requests to the Father in my own name. But I need make no promise to plead or to intercede with the Father for you. Now, why in the world would Jesus say that he prom doesn't promise to plead or to intercede with the Father for you? And this is uh, just such a highlight here. Here's why. For the Father himself loves you. So intercession is absolutely necessary. Intercession is absolutely necessary to bring us to God. Jesus is the intercessor. The Holy Spirit is the intercessor to bring us to the Father. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that when you understand that the one in between is God, then is there really anyone in between? Okay, when we've come to understand that the intercessor is God himself, who became a human, and when we come to really believe that the Father and the Son are one in heart, mind, and character, intercession has accomplished its purpose. Okay, and so coming into that understanding... Uh, involves seeing that the Father himself loves you in the same way precisely as Jesus Christ. So find that interesting. It's kind of in a prophetic, maybe a future thing where this understanding really becomes clear. Okay, so um, if 
God doesn't accuse us, who is our accuser? And here I think we can tie in with what Paul said in Colossians about uh, disarming the cosmic forces because the accuser throughout the Bible is Satan. Okay, in Zechariah, of course, we have Joshua the high priest. And remember, he's standing in dirty clothes and standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. Okay, he's wearing dirty clothes. Okay, so maybe he deserves to be accused. Okay, but God is annoyed at Satan for pointing it out. Okay, but, but he's the accuser there in the Old Testament. Okay, and it's interesting in Jude where Moses is resurrected and in his quarrel with the devil when they argued about who would have the body of Moses and we have this description about Michael, the archangel, and the devil arguing over the resurrection of Moses. Okay, because Moses, remember he let God down. He struck the rock. He couldn't enter the promised land. And so the devil is bringing these accusations, it would appear. This is not fair. You can't resurrect him. Okay, but he's the accuser. And it becomes really clear in Revelation about the huge dragon that was thrown out. And, and the writer here wants to make sure we, we don't miss the identity of the dragon. That ancient serpent brings us back to the Garden of Eden, named the devil or Satan that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. For the one who stood before our God and accused believers day and night has been thrown out of heaven. So the accuser again and again and again is Satan. And I think it's, um, it's really something if, if we can in our mind um, see God as the accuser. I mean, it's, it's a quite, a quite a tragic role reversal, really. If Who is the accuser? Is it demonic? Or is it God? And I talked last time about the movie Les Miserables, and I think this is really a good, um, good parallel. I mean, he's the accuser all the way through. The guy's a criminal. Doesn't matter what he's doing. He's bad. He's continually accusing, and despite the forgiveness and the way he was treated throughout the entire movie, just couldn't get over it. It's really a good parallel for, um, for, for Satan, the legalist, I would say. So, just to kind of summarize some of these here, that Jesus, remember, called in the prince of this world, that Paul, and I find this interesting, even after the cross, would refer to Satan as the god of this age, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and that John, in 1 John, would say the whole world is under control of the evil one, and that Satan leads the whole world astray. It's just so abundant, all of these quotes, and I think we've, we just got to incorporate this into our um, theology. So our question is, what does the death of Jesus have to do with defeating the cosmic powers? Okay, when um, Sigvi Tonstead was here and, and, and taught a religion course, he, he felt, this was his opinion, that the book of John uh, really turns on this one verse. Okay, where Jesus would say, now is the time for this world to be judged. Now the ruler of this world will be overthrown. And this can be translated as exposed, that the cross is it. Okay, this is when the world is judged, but also the, rule, the ruler of this world will be overthrown. That's the same thing as it, it's talking about in Colossians, the defeat of the cosmic powers. Okay, so how does it work? Oh, and just a few more. The linking the death of Jesus with the defeat of the adversary. In 1 John 3.8, the Son of God appeared for this very reason. We don't usually describe it this way. We describe the death of Jesus for our personal salvation. I think we can, we can see these two as one and the same. But he appeared for this very reason, to destroy what the devil had done. 
In Hebrews 2.4, Jesus became like them. He shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death he might destroy the devil. It's just redundant over and over and over. Okay, and the last one here, combining two verses, that Jesus came as the light of the world because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. Okay, so, so it's, it's a frequent relationship. Okay, so again, how does it work? Disarming the powers and authorities. Well, um, remember that uh, in Revelation 12, which is really, I think, the starting point for our uh, earthly experience, it actually backs up a little bit, that there was war in heaven. And the word there, polemos, uh, the word polemics is the art of argumentation, controversy. And kind of think of it as um, sort of like we see political candidates uh, mudslinging each other. Kind of in that sense. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon who fought back with his angels. So the whole problem began with this war in heaven. And so if we just back up here in a little bit in uh, Colossians, uh, it's interesting how Jesus' death is associated with peace. Okay, many times. Uh, just giving one verse here. It's kind of a, it seems like a bookend to the war that began. So through the sun, then God decided to bring the whole universe. That's more than just what's going on here on this planet, the whole universe back to himself. Okay, there was war in heaven. God made peace through his son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things. And again, Paul's trying to make it clear, not just here, both on earth and in heaven. Okay, so the death of Jesus has significance of a, of a cosmic um, proportion. Okay, so I'll kind of, um, I'll call this Satan's house of cards and I'll try to lay my cards out on the table here in terms of how, how I can make sense of this. Okay, um, we'll make a, an important point when we get to Revelation that we have a contrast between God uh, depicted as a slaughtered lamb against a dragon. And we have these parallels that go back and forth. Okay, and we see what the dragon is up to as he gives powers to beasts. That what he's up to is to curse or to slander God, his name, name his character in the Bible, the place where he lives, and all those who live in heaven. And I think uh, the essence of what Satan has been up to is to misrepresent, to slander the good name, the reputation, the character of God. That's the power, the sham power. And I like uh, some, if we could loosely translate some passages that refer to Satan in Revelation to just call him the mudslinger. Okay? What are some of the accusations? Now, many of you have been through this Bible study um, you know, for a long time, so I'm not going to go through all the stories as we tried to make the case, but I'll just kind of lay out. These are some of the accusations that I see made against God. Just think about what happened at the tree. You know, the Satan, the serpent says to Eve, is it really true you can't eat any fruit in this garden? Okay, the implication is God is not a giving person. doesn't res respect your freedom. You can't eat any fruit in this garden. What's, what's up with that? God is not a giving person. God is not a respecter of our freedom, which is really, um, uh, we just have to call that satanic because, I mean, the serpent couldn't even be there in the tree if God were not a respecter of freedom. But yet that's the accusation. Okay, so they have this conversation and Eve kind of weakly replies to the serpent, and then he bluntly says, well, God has lied to you. Okay, just the accusation there. God is a liar. God is not trustworthy. That's a very serious accusation. Okay, and, and all the way through, and, and we've tried to make a case for this before, the accusations are that God is a vengeful tyrant, that he's punishing, unforgiving, arbitrary, 
Okay, and for many that I have known personally, this is their, their picture of God. And this is why some people become atheists and just reject God altogether, because he seems that way. He can be portrayed that way. Okay, as, a, as just an arbitrary, vengeful tyrant. Okay, so, so these are the accusations. And um, I would just uh, like to say, I just thought about this in the few minutes before the Bible study, that going way back, um, people that I didn't know, I just found it interesting to learn the history a little bit at Loma Linda, that, that this emphasis about God's character and an enemy who accuses God's character, uh, there are many prominent individuals uh, in Loma Linda that have really talked a lot about this. And I think in some sense, Loma Linda has had a reputation for really discussing these ideas. One person you probably never heard of, Paul Huback, who used to be a pastor here at the University Church for many years. And here's a quote that from, from his book that kind of ties in with, with what I'm saying. So in the cross, we have a glorious revelation of the heart of God. Here again, Satan has blinded man to the true character of God. In the minds of many, he has made God to appear as a bloodthirsty tyrant demanding the life of the sinner. And if it were not for Jesus Christ, it would be just too bad for man. However, the cross is not a picture of a God demanding a sacrifice of appeasement. Rather, the cross is a picture of a living Father God giving himself through his Son as a sacrifice of at And you can see his understanding of the atonement. It's to bring things together, at one Okay, so I could mention many individuals uh, Jack Provencia, Richard Neese, again, probably a lot of these you, people you haven't heard of, but probably the biggest influence for me was uh, Graham Maxwell, who was still teaching when I was a medical student here. Um, and so here's a, qu- a quote uh, that's, uh, that he's said many times, uh, that God is not the kind of person his enemies have made him out to be, and one enemy in particular. Arbitrary, unforgiving, and severe. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. God is just as loving and trustworthy as his son, just as willing to forgive and to heal. So, you know, his emphasis was very much what you see in Jesus is what you see in the Father. We need to make the two one. And uh, that, that was just very meaningful um, for me. So, so I kind of like the, the thought of this being a Loma Linda emphasis. And um, I, I thought of this recently. I, I went to a conference um, and traveled on a plane and sat next to someone. And it came up that... Uh, that I um, practice at Loma Linda, and this individual, I think just trying to be nice to make conversations, tried to think of something that he knew about Loma Linda and said, oh, uh, you guys are vegetarians there on Loma Linda, right? And then he said, oh, I think I saw a YouTube clip about a lady that lived to be 104 in Loma Linda, and you know, it was kind of an interesting conversation, but um, I think that's fine if Loma Linda is associated with vegetarianism, no problem with that, but... Um, don't you think it would be neat if Loma Linda had a reputation somehow as being people that were really invested in God's character, as we had a reputation of um, trying to describe this con- cosmic conflict and that God is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be? Boy, that would be something if we had that kind of a reputation. Okay, I've never heard someone on a plane come up to me and say, oh, aren't you guys kind of invested in the character of God? That's, that's interesting. I've never, never had that experience. And, of course, a lot of this comes uh, from the influence of Ellen White. And I'll just read a couple of quotes here. The cross of Calvary would be looked upon by the unfallen worlds, by the heavenly universe, by satanic agencies, by the fallen race, and every mouth would be stopped. Who is able to describe the last scenes of Christ's life on earth, his trial in the judgment hall, his crucifixion? Who witnessed these scenes? 
again, it wasn't just for you and I, but it was for the heavenly universe, God the Father, Satan and his angels, angels, a, a, a cosmic audience uh, in a sense. So the context here is from the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as closed, clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself. Again, that the creator has been viewed as the devil, that, that we can actually mix the two up. It's just terrible, as arbitrary, severe, unforgiving, that he might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he had deceived that they would put God out of their knowledge. Okay, and then just one more, and we'll get uh, more specific here. So it is beyond the power of the human mind to estimate the evil which has been wrought by the heresy of eternal torment. The religion of the Bible, full of love and goodness and abounding in compassion, is darkened by superstition and clothed with terror. When we consider in what false colors Satan has painted the character of God, can we wonder that our merciful creator is feared, dreaded, and even hated? The appalling views of God which have been spread over the world from the teachings of the pulpit have made thousands, yes, millions of skeptics and infidels. So, and if you've read the Jonathan Edver Edwards uh, talk about hell, you know, to see God in that light, uh, boy, that, that just would seem to be a polar opposite of, of what we see on the cross. Okay, so let's just go through some of, some of the accusations. Okay? Um, God is unforgiving. Again, if we just sit back and we read the story of the crucifixion and we see, we see that the one here dying on the cross is God in human form, um, is it possible to hold to the view that God is unforgiving? I mean, what does Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them. And these are the people that just tortured him to death. So I guess the question would be, did the father have the same forgiving attitude as the son? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Uh, did the father say, well, I'm not sure about that. Okay? Don't you think Jesus said, Father, forgive them? Okay, because he had just said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus forgave them. The father forgave them. I mean, I think on the cross we see, we perhaps could say that God is forgiveness personified. The very personification of forgiveness. Okay, and if just the, the story of the thief on the cross. If we read this in Matthew, we just get the story that both thieves are hurling insults at Jesus. Okay, but one of them was very moved by this. One of the criminals hanging there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other one, however, rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God? You received the same sentence he did. Ours, however, is only right, because we are getting what we deserve for what we did. But he has done no wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me, Jesus, when you come as king. And, you know, there was no long sinner's prayer, forgive me for my sins. He just said, Remember me when you come as king. And we know Jesus' response. You know, today I tell you will be with me in paradise. So, um, just the interaction with the thief. We can't make God out to be forgiving when he so readily forgives someone um, who, as he admitted, is dying because he deserved it. Okay, what about, is, is it possible to hold to the picture of God as a severe tyrant? Again, if this is our crystallized image of what God is like, well, I mean, a God who would allow his own creatures to torture him to death. That's not a severe tyrant. A God who forgives his enemies is not a severe tyrant. If, God, if there's been a question about God's abuse of power, 
Well, uh, there have been many martyrs that have died, but none of them had the power to call legions of angels and to completely eliminate the people who are putting them to death. Here we have in Jesus, someone who had that ability, but he didn't use his power. So we can't accuse God of the abuse of power. Okay, we want God to be the one in control because we see in the cross, this is how he uses his power. He's not a severe tyrant. And just to think about the other interactions. I mean, Jesus didn't say a lot on the cross. Okay, but the, I like to think about the people that were really changed by what they saw. So the army officer, not a religious person at all. He'd seen lots of crucifixions, I'm sure. But he saw what had happened. And he praised God saying, certainly he was a good man. Or this man was really the son of God. When the people who had gathered there to watch the spectacle saw what happened, okay, what happened? I mean, you don't expect when you're torturing someone to death that they forgive you and that they're as gracious as Jesus was on the cross. When all these people saw what happened, they went home beating their breasts in sorrow. Okay, it's just you've never seen someone die the way Jesus died. And that even the army officer could say what he did. Uh, God is not a giving person. Okay, we think about Eve, you know, reflecting on that. God has withheld something that would be for her own good. Why can't I eat the fruit of that tree? Um, and certainly as she and Adam hid in the bushes in fear of God, could they even imagine that God would become a human and would suffer such a horrible death? You know, they were afraid of God. This was not their picture of God. Okay, so Jesus, his lavish healing and even giving his own life, um, certainly we can say God is a giving person. God is punishing. Well, this is a whole other talk, but remember we talked about Jesus' words, so significant. Why have you given me up? Why have you forsaken me? And if we follow that back, that the given up all the way through the Bible is associated with God's wrath, which in all those Old Testament examples that we used is always giving over, handing over, not God actively doing it, but God being pushed away. And then we see the consequence of sin, the separation from God. And I think, uh, as we talked a couple months ago, that the cross is the best place to see inherently the separation from God, what happens. Okay, and we see a, a mob of people that crucify Jesus to death, and uh, Jesus had the, the sense of separation from his Father. So I think at the cross we see who is the punisher. Uh, well, sin pays the wage. Death. Okay, sin does its own punishing. God doesn't need to add to it. Who is the destroyer? Again, if that's our image of God, we can't view God as the destroyer. And again, when we get to Revelation, we'll see who is the destroyer. We're told in the Bible who the destroyer is. When we get to the fifth trumpet, okay, the star which had fallen down to earth. Well, that's imagery of Satan from the Old Testament in Isaiah. Okay, and we read on, they have a king ruling over them, this one that came from the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, the name is Apollyon, meaning the destroyer. So we want to get our characters identified right. This is what Satan is like. This is what God is like. And we don't want to mix up the two. Okay? So um, I think uh, just reading this again now in the message, paraphrase, I like uh, how Eugene Peterson translates this, that he stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Okay? You can't believe any of those lies if the cross is the defining image of God. Okay, um, maybe I'll just finish with, with one other um, quote here. Um, have you, many of you read the Screwtape Letters? 
Uh, it's just really a, a great book. It's the discussion between two devils about how to tempt people. Okay, it's very humorous. And um, it seems that, uh, and there are verses, I won't read this because of time, that just suggests that, that the, the demonic and people who don't understand God, just this concept of love and forgiveness and all of that, it just doesn't make sense. And so I just thought of this one passage here in, in the screw tape letters, and then we'll finish. So the two devils are talking, and in the previous chapter, one devil said, boy, it seems like God, who he calls the enemy, really does love those human creatures. Hard to imagine, but it just seems like he does. Well, then he has a change of heart. And in the next letter, he says, the truth is I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy, remember that's God, really loves the humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. And again, I think about the inspector in, in Les Miserables. Just can't understand. Just can't wrap his mind around that way of living. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to out or to understand that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them? That is the insoluble question. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if ever we came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know that he cannot really love. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he is really up to. Hypothesis after hypothesis has been tried and still we can't find out. Yet we must never lose hope. More and more complicated theories, fuller and fuller collections of data, richer rewards for researchers who make progress, more and more terrible punishments for those who fail. All of this pursued and accelerated to the very end of time cannot surely fail to succeed. C.S. Lewis is a great writer here. So he's kind of humorous about how the devils are researching this and they have labs and they're trying to figure out what is love. Okay, But um, I think... That's what we need to understand. And so my hypothesis here is that we try to make the defining in image of God, Jesus on Calvary. And we'll have a lot of problems. We'll read the Old Testament. We'll have images of God that we'll have a hard time reconciling with that. And fine, let's wrestle with it. Uh, we'll have problems with the Odyssey and human suffering. How can we reconcile the cross with that? And fine, let's discuss that. But let's try to at least hold to that theory this is what God is like. And then let's wrestle with all of the other issues. Okay, let's pray. Father, once again, thank you for such an incredible revelation of what you're like at the cross. Uh, something that has so much depth that uh, really impossible to wrap our minds around, that, uh, that you are like that. But please help uh, each person here as we reflect on you, as we read the story that your spirit would uh, infuse our minds with a deeper understanding of what you are like and to give us good things to say to friends, patients, and others about who you are and help us to go out and be uh, defenders of your reputation in the world. Amen. <laughs>